Thank you, Mike. Good morning, Chantilly Bible Church family. It's so good to be back with you. As Mike mentioned, after a, a six-week sabbatical, um, you know, while uh, no one would deny, I think, the wisdom of churches allowing pastors after an extended uh, number of years of service time away to get some uh, renewed rest and ministry um, blessings, not all the churches choose to do that or they're not able to do that. And I want you to know that this time of refreshment that was granted to me is not something I take for granted. And I'm very grateful for Chantilly Bible Church allowing Valerie and I to get away that we did. One thing that I've heard over and over again since I've returned is we missed you a lot, but uh, you know the elders, the deacons, along with Pastor Mike and the staff, they did such a great job, not only on Sundays, but also uh, in the pastoral care needs of our church. And I can't tell you how rewarding that is for me as a pastor to hear that God is working. I'm so grateful through uh, the way God works through our leadership here, Pastor Mike and the staff. I also want you to know that I believe this sabbatical did exactly what it was supposed to do, at least from my perspective anyway. I feel like a new person, uh, recovered from a deep tiredness. I had no idea how how much beaten down I was from the COVID and all the stuff that was happening. Rested physically, restored both uh, spiritually and vocationally. In fact, I can't remember a time in my life where I slept and relaxed so well as I've done over that period of time. Let me share just a few highlights that I believe God blessed during that time. During the first week of our sabbatical, Valerie and I celebrated our 40th wedding anniversary, and we got to do that with a number of our children and grandchildren. Had a wonderful, wonderful time. The following week, we flew out to Rome, and uh, we enjoyed a lot of the historical and romantic sites. You know me being the romantic guy that I am. Uh, we visited also at the end of that week uh, with our missionaries, who are the missionaries of the week, uh, Jordan and Jenny Stanridge, and actually attended a worship service there. Uh, what a blessing that was. And then for the next two weeks, we flew to Belgium, where after nearly two or four years, actually, of separation because of COVID, we were able to reconnect and reunite with our brothers and sisters in the Deep and Bake Church there. We had lots of time for prayer, lots of time for personal Bible study, read several books, had amazing meals, Belgium uh, meals. Desserts are to die for. In fact, I think if you ate too many of them, you would die. But uh, walks, bike rides, uh, travel and uh, several other fun events together it was just so relaxing and such a blessing. We also had the opportunity, I had the opportunity to meet with the new pastor of the church in Deepen Bacon, all the leadership in their families, and I was so blessed, uh, encouraged by what I hear God is doing in Belgium in a tough, tough land. And finally, the last two weeks that we had, we spent here uh, with family and friends for a good deal of it, but we also went to the Jersey Shore, as we say, on the boardwalk and the beach and uh, had a wonderful time there. I don't know if absence makes the heart grow fonder, but for me it certainly uh, makes my heart more grateful, our heart more grateful to be a part of a, a dedicated and talented uh, church staff and leadership and to have such a loving family that we have here at Chantilly Bible Church. And we missed you all, but we're, we're really glad to be back now. And most of all, I'm excited and looking forward to how God is going to continue together with us to see his exciting plans, the ones in store for us near and in the near-term future. But I am so grateful for all of you, and I thank you for the privilege of having that time away. 
Uh, one thing that makes me a little nervous is everyone says, I can't wait to hear you. You're going to be great today because you've had so much rest. I hope I don't disappoint you here. Uh, this is just plain old milk giving you a sermon here, okay? We are going to continue today in our summer sermon series that we've entitled en Encountering Jesus. And we're looking today specifically at John chapter 9, where Jesus has an encounter and heals a man born blind. Uh, and so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 9. And I don't usually do this. But the Lord just laid it on my heart as I was studying this text this week to suggest that I want to start out the sermon today by literally reading the first 34 verses of this passage. And then looking at the impact that this encounter that Jesus has on the heart of this man who was formerly blind, I want to present three, if you have your notes, I'm going to present three major applications and several smaller ones. But as we read through this, I want to ask you, familiarity sometimes makes us lose the pop of this text. And I want to encourage you to listen with new ears, new eyes, uh, and, 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 and soak in the details of this study. Verse 1, are you ready? Here goes. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent us, who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having these things said, uh, the, having said these things, he spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the eyes, the man's eyes, with the mud and said to him, Go now and wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and he washed and he came back seeing. Verse 8. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. I love this. He kept saying, it's me, I'm, I'm the man, right? Great, great passage. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Salome and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought me to the Pharisees. The man, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly born blind. Verse 14. Now, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and he opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. Now, let me just add something here. Actually, Jesus did not violate the law. He violated the interpretations of these religious leaders. They had developed to keep the Sabbath holy. His spitting, his making mud, and applying it and healing this man on the Sabbath was offensive. Even today, okay, if you go to Israel from sundown on Friday until the sun sets on Saturday, many, uh, uh, many observant Jews refer, refrain from certain activities. I remember they wouldn't even push elevator buttons in the hotel that we stayed in. So many of the buildings at least have one elevator. They call it the Sabbat elevator that's programmed to stop on every floor during the Sabbath. And 
the observant ones can hop on and hop off and eventually get where they're going. So Jesus never violated the law. I wanted to make that clear. Let's continue on, verse 16. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do sins? And there was a division among them, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? Notice he said, he is a prophet. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they called his parents, the parents of this man who had received a sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things, verse 22, because they feared the Jews. Not the Jews, he, they themselves were Jews, but the Jewish leadership, okay? For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for a second time, they called this man who had been blind and said, give glory to God. That's another way of saying you're on oath here, okay? Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He, asked, he answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, I love this verse, though I was blind, I now see. They said to him, what, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them and said, I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, can't you just hear the disdain? We do not know where he comes from. The man answered, I love this. Why, why this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. Verse 33, amazing. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and would teach us. They cast him out. In other words, they excommunicated him. That, my friends is the word of God. And I want to make a couple of introductory thoughts before we begin to dissect here. First, I want you to note, as was already noted here just a few minutes ago in verse 32, that this is not the only story in the Bible where Jesus heals a blind man. This is, however, one of the very first stories and the only story where it is recorded that someone received their sight who was born blind. Imagine, if you will, that's the second thing here, and I think we don't realize what a blessing is. This man, this man has never seen anything in his entire life. And with this wonderful encounter with Jesus, he's now going to see the faces of those he loves for the very first time. He's also going to see the beauty of the sunset and the, and, and the skies and the green grass and the puffy clouds and mountains for the very first time. Put yourself in his sandals for a moment. Something I think that, that when I say this, most of us take for granted every day. He was about to see things that we enjoy every day. But we'll soon see, and I won't want you to miss this, this is the third introductory point here, that the story is much more 
than a story about physical blindness and the recovery of sight. For this story is also about, and I think the key point, the opening of the eyes and the heart of those who are blind in the things of God they, that they may see. And on the other side of that coin, so that those who claim that they know and see God, but they really don't, would understand just how blind they are. And we'll see that all come to a conclusion at the end of this. But verse 39 makes it clear. Jesus will say later in this narrative uh, here, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now these things being noted, the story begins with a bang, doesn't it? Jesus is Disciples are still in Jerusalem. They're walking about as they normally do. And as they're traveling, they come into contact here with this man born blind. I love, uh, powerful here. Is this man blind, the disciples ask, because he sinned or because his parents sinned? And we go, what? You know, the, our modern minds, our modern reader, this thing sounds ridiculous. For us, we attribute that kind of a condition to a, a body part not functioning as it should. But in the ancient Jewish world, physical ailments and suffering, like blindness, were often thought as punishments by God or from God for some act of disobedience that they had done or that their family members had done. And this idea is not something new, not something just in Jesus' time. It's centuries old. If you think about the story or the narrative of Job, right, you can recall some of his friends were actually saying the very same thing about him when he was suffering through a series of calamities. Of course, the problem was, according to Job 1.1, Job was an upright and a righteous man who feared God and was blameless in God's eyes. And so it's clear that though Job was suffering and enduring hardships in his life, it was not directly, not directly tied to any kind of sin in his life against God. Let me just say this, though, as we, as we counteract that. Galatians 6-7 warns, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For, who, for whatever one sows, so will he reap. And so it's true that uh, it's possible that we make sinful choices, although completely forgiven in Jesus Christ, we will sometimes suffer consequences for those decisions. And also it should be noted here that broadly and generally speaking, suffering first entered into this world when sin entered into the world. And so to, to this day, as a result, we are afflicted with all sorts of hurts and disabilities and hardships. And that's because these are byproducts of living in a sinful and fallen world. But let me just make this point really clear because I didn't know how to handle this text because I think it's important here, right here. This principle is what came to my heart and my mind. While, folks, it is fair to say that all forms of suffering are related to sin, I don't believe it is fair to say that all forms of suffering in our lives are directly traceable to personal sin. And I have a feeling that's something that could be a blessing if we understand that today. In fact, look at verse 3 and what Jesus said to his disciples. Question, it is not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And from Jesus' answer, I see two things just popping. First, he clearly discredits this myth that every misfortune in our life is God's punishment on our life. And the second thing, which we often don't think of, and in his answer, Jesus also teaches us that some of the suffering, God in his providence, in his wisdom, sometimes allows his children to go through hardship and suffering in our lives so that God can display his faithfulness and his power and his glory in and through us. We often don't think of that when we're going through it, but God certainly can do that in our lives. 
So Jesus corrects his disciples' bad theology here. And then he does something incredibly unusual. I don't know of anything that even comes close to this in the scriptures in Jesus' action. Verse 6 and 7, we're told that Jesus spit on the ground and the dirt, makes these little mud patties. He applies them to the eyes of this blind man, and then he commands him to go wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam. Um, not an easy thing to do, as I, as I was thinking about it. I always thought it was really close, but several years ago, when we were visiting Israel, we, a few of us at Chantilly Bible Church, you can see the photograph, had the opportunity to visit the Pool of Siloam. And uh, it's located in the, in the lower part of the old city of David, or Jerusalem. Uh, it's right there where King Hezekiah built uh, his pool here in the 8th century so that it would supply the, work, uh, the water to Jerusalem, even in a, a besieged situation. And this pool, amazingly, we walk through this tunnel, some of us, not a good thing when you're claustrophobic, we walk through almost 2,000 feet of uh, opening that narrow enough for your body, this fat body barely fit through in some places, but uh, from the spring of Gion. And, and, and this original pool, Simone, although we only see this portion, this is what it originally looked like, 53 feet long, 18 feet wide, 19 feet deep. Um, but as you see in my earlier photograph here, the site of the original pool of Siloam uh, has been excavated, but it's hardly the splendid uh, place. Where am I going with this? Here's the point I want to make. It sounds like, hey, just go wash. But as I did the research, the pool of Siloam is some 2,080 feet, about four-tenths of a mile from where the Temple Mount was that Jesus applied this mud to his eyes. And, and there's an ascent uphill of like 377 feet. So imagine this poor guy, blind, has these uh, mud patties in his eyes. He's walking up this distance, trying to walk through the crowds of this pool. Uh, they must have thought he looked crazy. But amazingly, when he did as instructed, Jesus said here, the scriptures tell us that the dark world that he was accustomed to became light. And one of the big debates among scholars is why this process um, why did Jesus go through this elaborate process of saliva and mud and all that? And, and I, I looked at a lot of different reasons, but the thing that I came up is that Jesus simply approaches each person in a slightly different way. Our Lord is not restricted by the way he delivers or heals his people. In Scripture, for example, we see uh, some people were healed by a word of Christ. Some were healed by the touch of Christ. Some were healed by prayer beforehand. Some with prayer afterwards. Some were healed from a distance. Some were healed very close. Some were healed in private. Some were healed in public. Some sought Jesus out. Jesus sought, as he did here, uh, this man out. The bottom line is that God can choose to do whatever he wants to carry out his purposes. Uh, and these things being noted, it, it, I, I want to ask you a question here because I started thinking about this. If you were blind, would you be willing to try just about anything to be healed? I think we would, right? And that's a good question to ask because this man, we have to remember as we read this story, was born blind, not deaf, okay? So what's he hearing with Jesus? <coughs> right? Um, let me tell you a conversation that he and Jesus didn't have at that time. Uh, I, I can't imagine the blind man saying, Jesus, did you just spit? Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, uh, Jesus, you know, the blind man saying, you're not really going to use that spit and to heal me, are you? Isn't there a much less germier way to, to heal me? That kind of a conversation didn't happen. 
And here's why. Because when you are desperate enough for God's deliverance, you don't care what method he uses. You simply trust that God can choose to do whatever he wants and carry out his purposes in your life. And the application I make from this point is I believe that the reason that so many of us have not received God's deliverance is because we're not desperate enough. We don't realize how much we need Jesus. Think of a situation in your own life right now where you desperately need Jesus to do something. You got something? I can think of a couple. How many of us are clinging to the possibility of that outcome or that method of deliverance being what we want? And how many of us are clinging to Jesus himself that he'll come through and do what's best for us? Blessed, says Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, are those who are poor in spirit. And to be poor in spirit has nothing to do with finances here. It's the opposite of being self-confident or self-reliant, especially in the spiritual issues of life. Likewise, in John 15, 5, Jesus is admonished us, saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. What situation in your life do you need God to work? Are you willing to trust him? As we look at this text, I want to derive my first point. You're wondering, well, when are we going to get to the outline? Because as I look at this text, I see that there's something building here. We see Jesus has a very unique and a very personal encounter with this man. And just like this man, this is my first point if you're taking notes, I believe that every Christian has a unique and a personal story to share. Every Christian has a unique and a personal story to fare share. And this story, it occurred to me, is one of the greatest gifts God can give us. It's a story that we don't really own ourselves, really. We are simply stewards and given the privilege of giving it away. Now, you may say, well, pastor, you don't know my testimony. It's anything but exciting. It's pretty boring. I find it boring myself. But I would submit to you today, brother or sister in Christ, we must not allow ourselves to see only God's grace manifested in those who have been saved from what appears to be much. Listen, hear me well, please, on this point. Your salvational gospel story is important. And I'm saying that whether you've been saved from the depths of cocaine addiction or a prideful heart or a prison cell or even in the comfort of your home as a child, every Christian has a redemptive story. Because just as Christ approached this man in a unique and a personal way, he has approached every one of his children, you and I, that have trusted in him. And here's the thing, the only one that can share with others what Jesus has done and is doing in our lives accurately is you or me, the one he's done to work in. So I'd encourage you, tell your story and tell it, tell it often. Tell it often. Let God do the work he wants to do. Now, as we get to this point in our text, I wish I could say when the beggar was healed, everything was unicorns and roses, um, that everybody lived happily ever after. But unfortunately, not everybody was happy for this healed man. And so in addition to our, each of us having a unique story, my second point is when we share our story, we likely meet opposition. And our text has three specific groups of people who oppose this man. Today we'll see his neighbors didn't even recognize him. His parents basically disowned him. And the Pharisees, they shamed and excommunicated him. Let's look at each of these groups and make some applications. First, his neighbors didn't recognize him. Verses 8 and 9. 
The neighbors and those who had, been, uh, had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Now, why this confusion? What's happening here? I want to give you a couple of thoughts or reasons that I think this is happening. First, I believe this confusion was created by the fact that he was completely out of context. This man was now completely out of context. For years, these neighbors had seen this man sitting down on the side of the road begging. And now suddenly this man is standing up, he's walking around, he's seeing normally, and he's totally okay. And so it makes sense that it would be hard to believe. I can remember years ago, I want to stress the years ago, when I used to work out at the rec center, right? And I would be there, and I'd have my hat turned backwards, and I'd be wearing a sweaty t-shirt, earbuds, gym shorts, and often it, people would not recognize me because I was not in the context that they were used to seeing me, okay? I can't believe their pastor's working out, I guess. So there can be some confusion here of identity because this man was now in a different context. But I think there's a bigger reason, a more important, a second reason for this confusion. You see, this man's neighbors had been passing him day after day, year after year, until he had become invisible to them. This man had become invisible to them. Think about it. His neighbors were used to seeing him day after day. Night after night, year after year, is this man blind and begging on the side of the road. And I believe that they don't recognize him now because for so long they ignored him, that he had become part of the scenery. And I think the lesson is so convicting to me as I thought about this. What are the places that you and I cross paths with people regularly? And think about it, your neighborhood, your, your gym, your, my favorite coffee shop, you know, your, your classroom, your family, or your friends. And I would ask you as I asked myself this week, have, I be, have, they, have those people that I pass by every day become part of the scenery? Have I unintentionally, have you unintentionally ignored or forgotten them and forgot that they need to know Jesus? I think that was the bigger reason why they didn't recognize him. Second, his parents basically disowned him. Verse 22 tells us why. The Jews had already agreed, remember that's the Jewish leaders, that if anyone confesses Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Of course, that meant in this day and age to be thrown out of the synagogue meant losing all your friends, your family, all your benefits. Uh, uh, and so his parents completely deflect on their son. And from this response, let me share that uh, we need to understand. We're reminded that Jesus teaches us here that there will be people, even people within our own family when we trust in Jesus, who aren't going to rejoice over it, but they're going to reject us. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. And third, the Pharisees we see shamed and excommunicated him. Notice the mounting opposition in our text that we just read through. The first time the Pharisees simply questioned him. The second time when they met with his parents, they subjected them to a grilling. And finally, they brought him before them again and they confronted him. They ultimately insulted him and excommunicated In fact, they end up saying, You're, you weren't really healed. This, this, this is a, a fake, illegitimate miracle. And said, by the way, don't you dare school us because you're nothing but a sinner. And so is this Jesus who you claimed healed us. And they excommunicated him. 
And again, that was a much bigger thing than we can understand. But the basic principle, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that the more you and I understand the nature of our relationship with our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ, and the more that we articulate that relationship through our words and through our deeds, the more opposition we're likely going to meet. And we see that here. But the final word, and my third point here, is this. The more we share our story, the deeper we grow in our relationship with Christ. When sharing the story of his encounter with Jesus in verse 11 with his neighbors, he says, this man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes. Later in verse 17, when he's meeting with the Pharisees, he moves from this man to this man is a prophet. He is a prophet. Then in the second interview, as I've already mentioned with the Pharisees, when the pressure is on, I mean pressure is on, he responds to their threats with the most, one of the most famous statements in all the Bible, verse 25. Where, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. This one thing I do know, he says, that though I was blind, I now see. And take a look at verse 33, where the man tells these learned, educated, religious leaders, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Folks, the power Hear me, the power of a personal testimony over a bad argument is, is, is very great. Think about it. Even though this man, he had no seminary degree, had no Bible college degree, he had no discipleship training, he had no even Sunday school experience, his simple testimony was enough to confound the religious experts of his day. No, he didn't know a lot. But this one thing he knew, and it's something every one of us who are a genuine believer in Jesus have, his life had changed. And Jesus did it. And that, my friends, is a story worth sharing and telling. Yes, there, there is a place, and I don't want to belittle, for a defense of apologetics for our faith. But often, I would submit to you that the greatest apologetic in the whole world is a changed life through Jesus Christ. And so I urge you, don't, don't ever... Be intimidated when people try to trap you or press you about your faith. You might not know everything, but you do know this, that you were blind if you're truly a believer, and now you see. Well, unable to refute this man's miracle with Jesus, according to verse 34, the Pharisees excommunicated him. Now what? Unrecognized by his neighbors, literally disowned by his parents, what was this man to do? To whom should he turn? Well, brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The man didn't have to turn to anyone because notice Jesus sought him out. Verses 35 through 38. Here's what we read. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? He answered, I love this. Remember, he hasn't seen Jesus face to face. He answered, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him. That's a beautiful thing there. You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Again, prior to this moment, because of his blindness, this man had never actually seen Jesus. But now, after this run-in with the Pharisees, Jesus tenderly and personally pursues him. And in this encounter, Jesus 
helps this man to realize that Jesus, as he said, was more than a mere man. He recognized that. He was more than a mere prophet and more than a miracle worker sent from God to heal him. He was the Son of Man, the promised Messiah, worthy of his trust and worthy of his worship. That beggar, born physically and spiritually blind, but now as he listened to the word, as he believed and obeyed the word, as he put his trust in Jesus Christ, both his eyes and his heart were opened. In contrast, in contrast, and I really think this is the whole purpose of the story, because of their pride and because of their self-righteousness and their traditions, their false interpretation of the word of God, the Pharisees rejected the light. And even though they had good physical, physical vision, they became more spiritually blind. Look at verse 41. Jesus tells him so. If you were blind, Jesus warns, you would have not known, had no guilt. But now that you say, we see, you are, your guilt remains. And, and it comes down to this. This is what I realized when I was studying. Here, here's the final. Every one of these things kind of brings us to a, a, a question that we all have to wrestle with. Every one of the encounters, I've watched them all. And this one is, how, dear friends, would you respond if Jesus were to ask you today, do you, do you, not your mother, not your father, not your grandmother, do you believe in the Son of Man? Just who is Jesus to you? I, I want to urge you to keep going back to this question throughout the series because I am convinced that there just might be some here who, like the Pharisees, claim to see everything clearly but are spiritually blind. And it's my prayer as we're going through these Encounter with Jesus series that we would open our hearts and our eyes, maybe just a little bit at a time like this man, and come to the place where we can say, Lord, I believe and I will worship you. That's the only cure for spiritual blindness and receiving the gift of eternal life. We all have a story as believers, and my encouragement to you is share that story. Share it everywhere you go and with anyone who will listen. What's your story? What's your story? More importantly, do you have a story to share? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this powerful uh, story in your word. Thank you once again for just a beautiful opportunity to see you encountering people and how lives are changed as they put their trust in you. Father, I pray that each of us would, would uh, uh, come to the place where we're excited and and willing to share our testimony wherever we go. Help us, Lord, I pray, not to uh, see people getting lost in the scenery, but actually looking for opportunities every day to share the good news of Jesus. And Lord, for those who might be here who have never come to place their trust in you, I pray that you will open their eyes and their heart to see that you love them, that you died for them, and that, Lord, if they will put their trust in you, you will give them the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.